Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Emily Tampkin, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Mukulika Banerjee. She is an associate professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics and author of the new book, Cultivating Democracy, Politics and Citizenship in Agrarian India. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to discussing agrarian politics in India today, but also your new book, which is the result of... I just want to stress for our listeners, 15 years of work. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So before we get into the book itself, I want to talk about the some recent news from India, which is that Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced that Parliament would be repealing the laws that were criticized during the farmers' protests over the, the past year. Basically, the farmers were protesting because they said that the laws would let private companies completely take over the agricultural sector in India to their own detriment. This is a rare reversal from Modi. What was special about the farmers' protests? The farmers' protests that were called off finally after 379 days on the 11th of December were an unprecedented event in uh, modern independent India. What we saw was a coming together of thousands and thousands of farmers, largely drawn from the states of Punjab and Haryana in the north of India, literally occupy the highways leading into India's national capital, New Delhi, in protest of these three laws that you just mentioned. Their initial plan last year on the 26th of November, which is also the day, is Constitution Day in India, that day had been chosen for farmers to bring their tractors and have a march, a demonstration in the city of Delhi. The government didn't want this, so they stopped them at the borders of the capital. 
And basically, the farmers just stayed put and said, we will not leave from here till you've taken these farm laws back. Now, the reason why it's unprecedented is because, I mean, it is the longest non-violent demonstration and occupation that we have seen. But it's also unprecedented because it, it meant a coming together of, say, agricultural workers and industrial labor, of workers and landowners, farmers and cultivators, a very strong presence of women, people from different castes coming together. So it was quite an extraordinary creation of a solidarity that that we have seen in a very long time. And it was so spectacular. Imagine thousands and thousands of farmers on hundreds of miles at these four entry points into Delhi. I happened to be in India last month and was uh, lucky enough to be on one of these borders on the day that the prime minister made his announcement. And there was jubilation everywhere, as you can imagine. I went to these protest sites and, and... They're just remarkable. They're like encampments, uh, temporary, but incredibly well-organized, efficient, well-run, generous, civil ethos. It it was unlike anything else anywhere. I I want to speak a bit about your book because it's, it's relevant to this, because you focus on agrarian politics specifically. How did you decide to make that focus? And what do we as people trying to make sense of politics in India, what do we miss when we look at party politics in the cities and not at rural politics? Okay, so I think the general problem and the general issue with thinking about democracy, I'd forget India for a moment, just thinking about democracy, immediately our mind turns to parliament, to elections, Mm -hmm. to the institutions of democracy, right? We know about the separation of powers, um, etc. Now, democracy is not just about an institution. Democracy is as much about creating a democratic culture. This is what Tocqueville was writing about in his uh, volume, Democracy in America. What he observed was not just the institutions, but the the way in which people related to each other. It was mm-hmm. the associational life between people. And this is what, obviously, in a democracy like India, which is going to mark 75 years of of its nationhood next year in 2022, it's been a while since India has been a democracy. And so much of the discussion of India's democracy is dominated, as it is indeed anywhere else in the world, by talk of party politics and voting and voter attitudes and so on. I was very interested in thinking about democracy both at elections, fascinate me, I have watched them for over 20 years closely, but also what happens to society in between. Democracy doesn't disappear the moment the elections are over, that continue, that country, that society uh, continues to remain a, a, a democracy. So it was really trying to bring together electoral and inter-electoral temporalities together in the study of democracy to talk about democratic institutions, but also to talk about democratic culture and probe the relationship between the two. Does adopting democratic institutions create, automatically create democratic culture? How much democratic culture do you need for institutions of democracy to be protected? A question that 
I think we asked on the 6th of January in Washington this year. So what do you need to protect institutions and what do you need to create democratic culture? That's Those are the issues that, that interested me. You have early in the, or relatively early on in the book, you talk about, your book is focused on the state of West Bengal and there's a part early, relatively early on where you describe people during the decades in which the left front was in power continuing to vote for an alternative, not winning and coming back and doing it again and continuing to cast these oppositional votes and how and how that itself was important for their own political identities and also for I, I, the way that I understood it for democracy itself. I, I was really struck by this section because I think often people look at places and say, okay, things are bad and they're not getting better and nothing's changing. Can you speak a bit about that I don't even know how to describe it, that persistent oppositional faith and its role in democracy. I'm so delighted, Emily, that you picked up on that because I think that's actually one of those key facts in the book that is uh, very revelatory of something Mm -hmm. uh, that we don't normally recognize, which is that India, as you said, in West Bengal, in the state of West Bengal, we saw this unprecedented 34-year period of the left front's electoral victories, right? So this is the largest, longest any communist government has been elected to power anywhere in the world through genuine elections. And yet, we may therefore, if we were to just look at this, say, this is not really democracy, is it? It's the same party coming back to power again and again. This is not, we're not having the quite the multi-party uh, system. We're not getting a change in government as we should. But by looking as one does and that you picked up on, the fact that even at a time where there is complete hegemonic hold of a political party on the imagination, you think because they win the election, if you look at the vote shares of how, of opposition parties, People continue to vote for the opposition because when I asked them about this, they said, well, that's what democracy is, right? That's what the secret ballot is about. You don't always, you may know that your party is not going to win, but what's that got to do with the fact that I want to support them? And the, the even at its heyday, the fact that the Communist Party's left front had to recognize that not that sometimes 40% of the population was voting for the other parties, the opposition parties, also meant that they could never be complacent. Mm-hmm. And and democratic power of governments is always has to look over its shoulder, right, to the next election. And the democratic power of the electorate is always that, oh, we can throw these guys out in four years, five years uh, time. So there is that sense of a multiplicity of political subjectivities. Not everybody feels the same way about political parties and people are able to express their preferences in a variety of different ways. How important though is high voter turnout in in creating those conditions? Because you in the, the villages that you looked at, it was extremely high. I think you wrote 85%, which is how which is how voters remind those in charge that they're accountable to them, right? Is there the same kind of accountability if turnout is 40, 50%? It certainly is very high when people turn out in such high numbers because you know that people really care. And people, even the poorest person in India, tells you quite eloquently that, look, I do have the power of the vote. I can Mm -hmm. 
contribute to to change, yeah, which is a hugely empowering thought. But the voter turnout in India, we should say for our listeners, that is really quite significantly high. The national average is about the same as most of the mature democracies. But if you go down, you know, about 60-70%, but when local elections get higher voter turnout, and now more women vote than men, and when I started the research in the very late 90s of, of the last century, more rural people voted than urban people. This has changed over the decades. But at that point, it was astonishing to discover this, that people living in villages which are traditionally less well-off, have less education, less exposure to information. Nevertheless, voters who were most engaged in electoral processes. And at that stage, it was really a mystery. We didn't know why this was happening. So my research was a response to that question. Find a location that reflected these survey results, somewhere that was fairly poor, that was rural, that was also agrarian, that cultivation would be a very important part of it. I wanted, it was that demographic. And sure enough, these guys had voter turnouts of over 80, 90% in elections. And then the task was really to understand what is it about people that makes them go to vote? What do they think they're doing? What are their expectations? Why do they do it? Are they being told to do it? Are they being forced to do it? Are they being bought off? These are the kind of theories that you usually have about poor, enthusiastic voters. And then you discover that actually there is a huge range of different reasons that people bring to the act of voting that makes them so engaged. And you're right, it's very important for democratic culture and democratically elected governments to know that the electorate cares and is watching and will punish bad performance. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the new Statesman on digital, in print or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One of the key figures in your book in, in West Bengal politics is is Mumta Banerjee, the chief minister of West Bengal, who is who ousts this left front of which we have spoken, and then is and now is in charge, and is also seen as one of the potential figures nationally who could mm-hmm. take on Modi. Mm-hmm. Two questions: One, do you see her having have observed her up close? Do you see her playing that role? And, and secondly, to go back to our earlier discussion, do you think that's the wrong question? In other words, is okay, who is going to be the single individual to take on this other individual? Is that the wrong way to think about a democracy? Yes, I think your second question is so interesting. Uh, your first question. Is Mamata one of the contenders? Yes, she is. Uh, she's just done a whole sort of tour of the country, meeting opposition parties in different states. There are mixed signals. We don't know. Personally, when I used to observe her firsthand, I always thought of her very much as a leader of Bengal. It's just this year's elections. I think the last time you and I spoke in April 2021, when she defeated Narendra Modi himself, his party in Bengal, that I think people began to, or she probably recognized the enormous influence she could have uh, because she was she had managed to so summarily defeat this huge and powerful and wealthy party machinery of uh, Modi's party, the BJP. But I do think, I agree that it may not be the most, it's a question that we'll all ask, of course, especially as we come up to 2024 and the national elections happen of what are the different formations, who's going to challenge the status quo. But to my mind, the more interesting question, at least, is how do you challenge and repair the degeneration of democracy that we have seen in India, as indeed we are seeing in all democracies across Mm -hmm. the world, this backsliding that we are all talking about. And really the way to deal with this backsliding is to recognize that for us to have genuine democracies, you need to have much greater active citizenship than we do normally. Citizens in a democracy need to be engaged, they need to participate, they need to ask questions, they need to be brave, and they need to build solidarities. And it's really that kind of people brought together around issues in solidarity with each other that would do their work in a democracy of holding a government to account. And so to go back to the farmers that we started mm-hmm. this discussion with, the, the really remarkable thing about this movement is that they were faced with three laws that had been passed by a government that doesn't care about parliamentary procedure, that had pushed it through both houses of parliament without scrutiny on a voice vote and hadn't done any consultation, right? So this was flouting all democratic norms. But when the state is so powerful, what do you do? And these farmers just looked at themselves and said, we have each other. We have us. We have our bodies. We can literally put our bodies 
on the line. And they and it was very interesting that the way that the government responded was not to say, okay, let's have a conversation. Let me try and convince you. Let me try and persuade you. No, they started with dousing them with, with water cannons in the middle of winter or literally digging up the road so their tractors couldn't reach Delhi. And so it was naked sort of violence against them. And so when the farmers withstood that, what they were able to create by looking at each other's incredible courage and stubbornness, that if they patiently sat it out, they were absolutely determined that they were going to, they told the government that, look, we're not going to go anywhere. You can keep us waiting, but we, we'll stay. And they stayed until it became impossible for the government to go into the next round of elections with thousands and thousands of farmers camped in the national capital, and, and they had to capitulate. Now, this, I do say that farmers are particularly good candidates for this kind of democratic protest because they understand the nature of patience and waiting. Mm-hmm. That's what cultivation is about. But but for democracies, this is what we need much more of. We need solidarity and hard work and hope. I have just a couple of more questions for you. The first is, do you think that the government underestimated them because they were farmers? So in other words, you look at, at these farmers' protests and think, oh, here are all of these different traits that farmers need to have that make them really well suited to do this. But do you think that there was an element of the BJP and the national government looking at them and saying, oh, they're farmers, of course, we're going to win this? Yes, I think, you know, the, the BJP's modus operandi in most uh, issues is to divide the population, right? So it polarizes according to religion. That's their uh, modus operandi for winning elections. As we know, it is to throw money at it. So I think they tried all of those things. And so they tried their usual strategies of dividing, also not expecting them to withstand that kind of name-calling or branding them separatists and terrorists and so on. And somehow, I think the expectation was very much like everybody else. I remember even Karl Marx thought that farmers, peasants were not suited for revolutionary mm-hmm. work because they were like a sack of potatoes. They were, they were together, but were, they were unable to generate collective action because they didn't have the right consciousness. And the farmers' protest, we mustn't forget, this wasn't some spontaneous protest, right? This was a very well-organized protest. Hundreds of farmers' organizations came together. What had always stopped farmers' politics from becoming national at this scale was the infighting between different kinds of farmers' organizations, because interest groups, crops, regions, they all different farmers' organizations had different challenges and they rarely came together. These laws, in a funny way, actually provided an opportunity for them because it was going to affect everyone. And they came together and stuck it together. So, yes, they were underestimated and the underestimation kind of fueled the work of the organizations and the labor unions of farmers to really dig their heels in and get creative in how to hold uh, these farmers together. I mean, you know, just a minor point to mention, which we don't appreciate, is that Delhi is a vast city. Mm-hmm. And these guys were at four different ends, the northern end, the eastern end, the southern end. You know, They were at different ends separated. So it's not like the farmers were constantly aware of the others. This was used social media and comms between the different parts of the organization and the central coordination committee is really what kept them together. So it was a success in 
mobilization of how a social movement should work. And yeah, you're right. I mean, if you think about it, farmers anywhere in India, even though 70% of India literally lives in India's villages, they are always very little, they're not understood much. So certainly none of the intelligentsia or urban folks think about rural India much. This has been a game changer. Mm-hmm. They literally had to leave their villages and come and camp on the uh, capital's borders to become visible for people to see just how incredibly civilized this whole protest was and powerful for for people to have genuine admiration for them. You write toward the very beginning of the book that that you, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like it was, in hindsight, you were working on this book back when India was still a democracy. The implication being that it is not a democracy in the same way today. Did that strike you as a bold claim or a controversial claim or as a person who studies India, was it obvious to you? I think it's empirically true. I wasn't being polemical. I think there is plenty of evidence and not just collected by me, but people who measure these things systematically and make up different indices, say of press freedom of human rights records, of pro-independence of institutions. People who measure this stuff in different kinds of indices have been worrying about India's loss of rank on these indices and its evident backsliding on all of these things. And for somebody like me who has celebrated and studied India's elections so closely, not just what is happening between political parties, but how elections are conducted in India, which is a a phenomenal exercise. If you think this electorate is bigger than most countries put together, their electorate, Mm -hmm. it would be larger than that. And yet there was a certain efficiency and a committed nature of the bureaucracy that run elections in India. And that system which was such a pride and joy, not just for India, but for every country that was poor enough but chose democracy as its chosen form of government, that it was a source of pride. And that has been corrupted. You know, it has been corrupted in the last seven years because of deliberately making electoral finance opaque by compromising the secrecy of the ballot box and by compromising the neutrality of the Election Commission of India, which was such a well-regarded public institution. So it's not a subjective take on Indian democracy and its backsliding. It is these kind of empirical facts that uh, led me to make that claim. There is so much more on agrarian politics, on the politics of West Bengal, on democracy in your new book, Cultivating Democracy, Politics and Citizenship in Agrarian India. Mukulika Banerjee, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please do tell a friend, an acquaintance, even an enemy, and rate us and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. And I am Emily Tampkin. Thanks for listening. And until next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.